Welcome again, everyone. We are going to be in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And we are continuing through the crucifixion, burial, and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. And we are going to be in John 19, verses 38 to 42, which I'm going to read now, which should also be on the monitors for you to follow along. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus. And they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the custom, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So <clears throat> where we are right now is... Um, it's a, it's, we've been on a long journey through the Gospel of John. We've seen all of John's nuances, uh, nuances and references and hints uh, to this particular place. Jesus coming and breaking forth the new creation, pushing forth the kingdom of God into this present age. He ends up going to the cross. He dies on the cross. Last week we spoke about how prophecy was fulfilled about him being pierced and them looking on him and also not a bone of him shall be broken. And we talked about how this was John's way of uh, defeating the Gnostic heresy that Jesus wasn't a real person. He was a fig, he was a spirit or an illusion. He didn't have a real physical human body. And so John, he tells us about this by including these things, but he also continues here in the same light. So I'm not going to rehash all of that, but certainly he is alluding to the fact that Jesus's physical body was taken down from the cross, was placed in a physical tomb, and ultimately what we are going to really zone in on today, he was placed in a garden by two secret disciples. Now, when we think of a garden, <clears throat> many things can come to mind depending on who you are. For some, a garden means opportunity like Miss Elvira, who's planting gardens everywhere that she goes in her home out front of here. That's all her handiwork. People like her, they see the soil, they see the exposure to the sun, they see all the possibilities of fruits and vegetables and plants and trees and flowers. And then there's people like me who don't understand anything about a garden, but yet I can appreciate the beauty of it and I can appreciate the potential of what it can bring forth. And I'm sure you can agree. When God first created the earth, he planted a garden shortly after. So he creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the, one of the first things that he draws our attention to in the book of Genesis is he, he creates a garden. The Lord God planted a garden in the east of Eden, in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. It's Genesis 2.8. So in a place that flourished with life, a garden planted by God, 
Man was placed in that garden to tend it and to cultivate it. Man was also given a helper, a woman, to become one with, to come alongside of, and to cultivate and grow together that garden to the glory of God as his image bearers. But another reason that God had created this garden and another reason that God had placed man in this garden was to, for them to be tested. It was a testing ground. Adam and Eve had the ability and the choice to do good. And they failed. As we know, we know the story. They failed the test. They disobeyed. They were removed from the garden for this disobedience and never allowed back to return. And today I'd like to make the argument not be able to return until this scene that we're looking at here. You see, in our passage today, we see yet another garden. But this time, rather than man being kicked out of the garden, we see a garden where man's vocation, his job as an image bearer to tend the garden of God is about to become resurrected and opened up again for business. You see, John's gospel is the only one who mentions Jesus's body and tomb being located in a garden. This is a a theme throughout John, new creation, new Genesis. So he's always alluding back to creation, back to the fall, and back, uh, obviously, in his present writing to the solution to this fall. And in this chapter, I believe the purpose of his mention, in this passage, his mention of this garden, like he's hinted to all the way since the very first chapter in his book, in the beginning, as we've referred to many times, is about to become revealed. Now, interestingly enough, John has two people in this scene who we've heard very little about up to this point. One whom we haven't met yet, and the other who we met briefly in chapter 3. They physically take Jesus down from the cross. They lay Jesus in the tomb in this garden. And so today we're going to take a look at what John is trying to tell us here. Not only by having Jesus being laid in a a garden, not only because we see another garden being laid in this tomb, in this new garden, but also why is he showing us two secret disciples who are involved in this process? So that's what we're going to take a look at today. And what John is showing us here, I believe, number one, is the word, I'd like you to remember this word, renewal. We are going to get into this, uh, we're coming to the climax of the story, the resurrection. We're coming to the ultimate purpose and conclusion of everything that the entire Bible was written for. And that is God to reverse this curse. For God to show that he is ultimately the covenant God the righteous one that does every single thing that he had promised, that he had created a world that was good and that we thought seemingly, oh no, this corruption of sin, it's taking us down further and further and further. But God's plan all along is to fix the problem, 
to reverse the problem and to make something new out of the problem. And that is through Jesus Christ. He is the method and the means of new creation. He is taking us, John's taking us here full circle back to this garden where death cursed all of creation. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat because in that day you will die. You will surely die. Physically and spiritually, sin has provoked and brought in death into this picture. Death is the polar opposite of new creation. So we have creation, procreation, God's propagating creation, but death is what anti-creation is. Those of us that live outside of Christ just as those that live in Christ are becoming made new every day, sanctified, being aimed towards that ultimate glorified body, which when new creation will be fully complete in you, those who are away from Christ are going down just the opposite. Those that are in Christ are becoming more and more human. They're becoming more and more like the image of God, reflecting the image of God out. Those who are outside of Christ are going just the opposite. They're becoming less and less human. And the ultimate destination of that is not just some fiery punishment pit. It's going to be the result of that entire process where those people that choose and reject Jesus Christ are going to ultimately fulfill not that new creation, but fulfill that anti-creation, that anti-human being. What Jesus is doing here, because remember, there was another tree in the garden as well, wasn't it? There wasn't there. There was the tree of life. Now that tree of life, I believe, is symbolic of Christ. He's going to bring life to the entire world. Look at, listen what it says. I like this. I like to call this the Revelation 22 project. Jesus is about, is about to begin it right here. Listen to this. Revelation 22, 1 to 5. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and, the, and, of, the tree, and of the tree were for the healing of the nations." So this tree of life is going to provide that full, blossoming, bursting forth, new creation where its source is that tree, Jesus Christ. And it continues on and on. So where sin and death began and killed the human race in the garden due to sin, Jesus is now die, has died and is now being planted in that garden to start this renewal project. And when he rises from the dead, he is going to bring forth much fruit. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, Jesus said, it abideth not. But if it dies, it's going to bring forth much fruit. This, I believe, has application in the resurrection. Without the resurrection, 
we have nothing. Without new creation, we have nothing. You see, ultimately what Jesus is doing here, why John is bringing us back to the garden, is because I believe he's trying to show us that this is not only just our way to salvation, but this is also our renewed vocation. You see, we have a vocation as God's people, as the new human race in Christ, and that is to be God's image bearers. We lost that in the garden. Yes, we were still made in the image of God, but look at it. We have to look at ourselves back in the garden, in the Adam and Eve sin garden, as that cracked mirror unable to properly reflect out the image of God. But now we are back in that garden. No, we're not sinless. We're not Adam and Eve. And it's symbolically right now what we are is we have a renewed vocation. Not a new vocation, a renewed vocation. You see, Adam's job was to go out and take dominion, go out and and populate and bear fruit, and multiply. And so now what we are to do here as these renewed individuals in Christ, you look outside there, that is your garden. That world is your garden. Your your vocation is to glorify God out in that garden. How do we do that? Well, first and foremost, we keep a very short list with God. Do you have a dirty conscience today? Is your conscience defiled? Is your conscience feeling like you're not even good enough to come to Christ because of the things maybe you've thought, the things maybe you've said, the things maybe you've done? Well, Jesus says to you, come to me. I'll get rid of that sin. I'll restore you and I will allow you to be that fruitful image bearer in your life, in your school, in your family, in your job, in everything. And just like when you plant that seed and it bursts forth fruit, that's what you're going to do towards this Revelation 22 project where everything is made new and renewed. I also believe John is trying to show us here that reconciliation is also have begun right here with mankind. man ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and died. Jesus hung on the tree, which produced life so many can live. Romans 5.15, the free gift, the salvation, is not like the transgression, the sin of the garden. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, much more did the grace of God And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Didn't abound to everyone. Didn't abound to everyone. Oh, it abounds to all people, all tongues, all nations, all tribes. But only those in those nations, tribes, and tongues, and places that believe on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can be included in that grace. You see, you're having a test. just like Adam and Eve did. You see, it says here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So it wasn't so that man would eat of it and I would now know good and evil. 
It was so God could look and test the good and evil in man. You see, man could never eat from the tree of life after they chose evil. Man was unfaithful. Jesus was the faithful man. Man failed, but Jesus was faithful to return to the garden and fix mankind's error. And I believe that's what John is symbolically showing us here. It's a beginning and an ending. It's two bookends. Where man became permanently separated from God in the Garden of Eden, now God reconciles man to himself in the garden where Jesus is buried and laid. And of course, the resurrection will also take place. Thirdly, restoration has begun. And this is very odd because we see this restoration being begun with two people that are secret disciples. Who are they? Well, one is Joseph of Arimathea. We have not heard of him up to this point in this gospel. He is mentioned in all the other gospels as well. Nicodemus is not, only in the gospel of John. Arimathea was uh, maybe 18 to 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea, we hear a lot about him. John shows us here, he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. That's all that he says. He doesn't say anything else. But here we see in Luke 23, 51, that Joseph of Arimathea was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the plan and action of the Jews. What does that mean, a good and righteous man? Does that mean that he was sinless? That he never did anything wrong? Does that mean mostly his good works outweighed his bad works? So he was a good and righteous man? And maybe God chose him for this, for this very thing. No, that's not what, it's not what it means in the context of Israel during this first century. What that means is he was somebody known to be identified as one that followed the law. He came to Jerusalem three to four times a year probably to worship at the temple. He gave his alms. He treated people well. But he needed a savior. And that's why he chose to follow Jesus. Though secretly, for reasons we'll discuss in a minute. Mark 15, 43 says he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the council. He was one of those 70 elders that when they needed to make a decision about something, they would call him in. And he would have to come and he would talk and he would, he would, give, he would rule and judge. Mark also tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a man that was studying the scriptures, studying the timing. He was a man that knew that the kingdom of God was about to burst in at any time. But when Jesus came, he knew this wasn't going to be the expected militant leader that most of the Sanhedrin and the people of Israel thought. No, he read the scriptures and knew that Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy as God himself to rescue his people through his own blood. Matthew 27, 57 says he was a rich man. This guy had money. It's probably why he had a, he had a tomb. 
Now this tomb, it says here, this tomb was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And the way that these tombs worked was, most tombs used to have room for two or three people inside of them. And the Jewish people, their burial custom was to take them and to wrap them in the linen garments, pack them with spices and myrrh and and, and aloe and all this stuff. Nowhere near the amount that they used for Jesus. This this says here 100 pounds. It's technically in the Hebrew about in the Hebrew weight measurement, about 80 pounds. And that is something that they would usually use if a king were to die. Not just a regular Jewish person or even a Pharisee. That would be a quarter of the amount. So Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He used this, these spices. He came, he packed them in. And what would happen is, is they'd bring the body inside the tomb. They would pack it up and they would roll a stone over it. And about two years later, they would go in and they would take, the, the body would be decomposed. They would collect the bones. They would put them in the box in the tomb so that that tomb could continually be reused and reused. But he's showing us here that this is a new tomb. So there could be no excuse for someone to say, oh, that was another body in there, or that was other remnants in there, that was somebody else's garments in there, that was somebody else's spices. This was a brand new tomb that was fairly expensive. And we could thank Joseph of Arimathea for stepping forward and donating this to Jesus. And, of course... He says in Mark that he gathered up courage. Now you have to remember, anybody that was in the Sanhedrin, that was a, 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 a Jewish person, a Pharisee, that believed in Jesus was kicked out of the synagogue. So Joseph was a scaredy cat. He did not want anyone to know that he was following Jesus. He didn't want anyone to know that he was a disciple and that he believed in what he believed. He was fearful, but he gathered up courage, went to the Roman leader, Pilate, and asked for his body. <clears throat> now, of course, Isaiah 53, 9, is a, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that says that Jesus was with a rich man in his death. But he physically removed Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine this. Think about what is what physically removing Jesus from a cross would entail. Not only did he make himself publicly known that he was a disciple, but he actually grabbed this body of this man whom he thought to be the Messiah, knew to be the Messiah, and he had to pry him off the cross, carry his bruised, torn apart body, lay it down, cover it up, and put it into the tomb. And then it says that he, Joseph of Arimathea, rolled the stone. Now we also have Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus to me is a a much more um, interesting character that he used as a secret disciple because we know that Nicodemus, we met him back in chapter 3. And he came to Jesus by night. And he was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And remember, Jesus said to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
This must have been ringing in his ears as he's taking the body of Jesus down from the cross. Thinking, wow, I used to be scared. I had to sneak around at night and talk to this man. Now I understand. Unless he was lifted up, unless he was taken up off the ground, he would not be able to draw all men to him. No one would be able to be healed as he's holding the wounded, bruised body of Christ that is, was, in flat, was in fact flesh. <clears throat> and he says that whoever believes this has eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This must have been ringing in his ears because now he is no longer that secret disciple hiding. He is now believing by touching and coming to the body of Christ. He also said, this is the judgment. Light is coming into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, but doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as being wrought by God. How ironic that this is happening with Nicodemus. How could he probably, I don't think he ever would forget those words his whole life, that he was now taking that step to no longer hide his evil deeds, no longer hide his unbelief, but to take a step out in the light and be identified with the dead body of the crucified Messiah. He was a secret disciple, but not anymore. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about these two secret disciples. I don't know why John had picked them. Maybe if if you want to symbolize and get uh, a a little bit uh, off course, like you could say, well, maybe they represent Israel because Israel was hiding. Israel was, was, was the ones that were rejecting Jesus. They rejected God throughout the Old Testament. And now what better than to have these two prominent people of Israel come out of the light as that first fruit of those who believe. Where man hid with shame and guilt, Nicodemus and Joseph, they now stand bold due to their belief in Christ. My question to you is, is, I know for myself, is that when I was in sin, when the worst part of my life, when I was in sin, most people thought I was a Christian. When I was out partying and doing all the things that I could list from here all the way around, which you don't need to hear, you can only imagine what it was, all the stuff that people do, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I was on the outside a Christian. But when I was with those people, guess what? I was a secret disciple. I was an undercover Christian. I didn't, you know, and, and, I, and I also thought that I was sort of doing good when I was out in that atmosphere and, you know, the topic of God would come up and I would even throw out some verses and throw out some stuff, you know, and while I was here partying, being a heathen. And I learned that in Christianity, there is no neutral area. You will be bogged down with guilt you will be bogged down with shame. You will have be bogged down with a tug of war. 
God will not get off of your back until you come out of the darkness and into the light. And so I often wonder, you know, because uh, I know it was myself. I was, the, I was hiding. I was hiding behind it. And until I came out and said and made sure that every single person, and, and, and sometimes in the beginning obnoxiously, but until every single person knew where my identity was, I knew that if I kept hiding it, I would, I would fall back and I would find that little cell group of people over here to hang out with. Or I'd have that little thing that I would run to over here. But we have to come out of the light and we have to come and embrace the body of Christ. We have to come and embrace Jesus out in the light. And then we do bold things like this, like, like Joseph did, coming down from Arimathea to pull that body down. Take that bold stand. He wants everyone to know now that he is a believer in Christ. Like Nicodemus, he wants everyone to know. He knows that if he stays in that darkness, he's going to continue to hide. He's going to continue to put up these little facades of being holy and religious when God knows that the only way is for us to get out and be exposed as Christians. So what do we do? Well, first, if you're struggling with sin, acknowledge your sin. Confess it to God. The sin grieves the spirit of God. When we sin, ultimately, we are giving the authority of freedom that we have in Christ. We are giving it over to this idol or sin or whatever it is that we're entangled with. We're handing that authority over to them and they throw the chain around our neck and they lock us up. We may look and act like a Christian, but we're really in bondage. But you see, as soon as you come to Christ and confess, I'm not saying you're confessing and now you're a perfect, sinless human being, but as soon as you confess to Christ, that authority has to be broken. Because Jesus says that when you come to him. Your yoke that you had with the enemy is broken off and his yoke is put on you. Okay, but we want everything to be lined up and perfect first. That's not what Jesus wants us to do. So we see here full circle in the garden with sinful man and our faithful savior. And we see the two people enacting in this, Joseph and Nicodemus as secret disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if God were writing scripture and my name was somehow to be put in the scripture, how cool would that be? You know, during that wild, snowy snowstorm, nor'easter, Pat made it faithfully to church. Didn't let the snow stop him. You know, whatever the case may be, that's a joke. But whatever the case is. But I say that because I don't know if I would want to be known as the secret disciple. I don't know if, that, if, if I had to be in Scripture publicly known forever in all eternity, the infinite word of God, I'm the secret disciple. You know, we don't hear, we don't hear anything after them, what they did or where they went. And I, and I tip my hat to them for coming out 
and, and standing bold where, when not even the disciples would do it. But making it on the pages of Scripture as a secret disciple would really, really bother me. It would bother me even more if I pass into glory as a secret disciple. You see, Jesus implies that, you know, denying him before people and before others would cause us to be denied by the Father in heaven. But being a secret disciple isn't necessarily mean that you have to deny Jesus. It just means that you're missing out tremendously on being that new image bearer that God has made you to be. It's that job. He's given you this amazing job, this amazing new vocation. But we're, instead of getting promoted to the top, we're, we're okay with being all the way here at the bottom. And I want to encourage you, don't be that secret disciple. One thing that I do in, with that, that I like to practice doing, and I have to say it's unfair because I'm a pastor. And it's so easy for me to tell people that. Oh, yeah, what do you do? I'm a pastor, you know. But when I wasn't a pastor and I was in film or in business and all the other stuff, it was difficult to get it out there that I was a disciple of Christ. But I had to make that point, like as I, I don't know if I finalized it before, but you want to make sure that in every aspect of your life, people know that you're different. People know that you have a boundary. People know that you follow a risen king, a risen savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to however many people are here. It means something different to each one. But yet there's a common denominator that this is our vocation, that the garden has been replanted, that the garden is flourishing. It's growing with us and the Holy Spirit inside of us moving but with expression of love towards others and love towards God. And that love towards others and that love towards God cannot happen outside of the belief, the active belief in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. And so what does that mean to you? I don't know. But, if you, but make yourself known of who you are. Take that stand whether it be against sin or whether it just be just out of pure joy, whether it be sharing the gospel with somebody, the whole gospel, letting them know this is what you believe, whether it be family, friends, whatever, take that step and take that stand. Be willing and believe to risk it all. Come to the light. The reason we don't come to the light usually is we feel there's a risk. Maybe there's loss involved, loss of friends, loss of a job. Um, So we say, you know, or we'll say, well, I'm I'm waiting for the the right time to come out of the light, out of the darkness into the light. Make contact. Read the scripture. Put yourself in Nicodemus's place. Put yourself in Joseph of Arimathea's place, holding that dead body of Christ in your hands. And then in another couple days, seeing him physically rise from the dead. That's what we have to focus on, that resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the power. That's why the Holy Spirit is here. That's what fuels us. 
That's what gives us hope. The hope of a world without sin. The hope of a new world that's coming and bursting in with you as the vehicle. God is using you to bring that in. That's so exciting. Yes, trials. Yes, tribulations. Meet them with love. Meet them with the word of God in scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the crucified and risen Jesus, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to not be secret disciples, to not wait to the end of the book to step out into the light, to not wait to the end of the journey, but to to, to right now, Lord, realize that we are standing in a new garden made by you, empowered by the risen Christ, useful tools in your hand, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that needs you, that they would come to you right now, that they would come out into the light of Christ.